Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Andreas, partner at Speed Invest one of Europe's most active early-stage investors with more than 1 billion euros AUM and 40-plus investors based in Berlin, London, Munich, Paris and Vienna. Andy found his way into venture via politics and is always up for a debate. This gave him an exceptionally good eye for promising ideas and trends. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. And now, some words from our beloved sponsors. How are you currently reporting to your LPs? Is fund administration taking hours? Are you getting lost in spreadsheet version control? Well, Flow solves all of these issues and more, allowing you to unlock the power of your fund's data by consolidating your work streams onto Flow. Book a demo to learn about Flow's portfolio and fund management features and transaction infrastructure at flow.io forward slash VC. F-L-O-W-W forward slash VC. For investors looking for capital, the UAE has become the hub of choice for VCs to connect with startups, sovereign wealth funds, family offices and funder funds. This October, join fund managers representing over $500 billion of assets under management from CVC, General Atlantic, Techstars, Sequoia, Speedinvest, MEVP and more who join Expand Northstart to connect with hundreds of early stage to growth startups from all markets for a curated concierge style meetings program. Previous participating founders hail from Stripe, Binance, GoOne, Byju's, InterSwitch, Caro, and more. Register now at expandnorthstar.com forward slash EUVC. Andy, welcome to the European VC podcast. It's super nice to have you here with us today. I think I want to start with the basics. I love starting like this. Andy, give us a quick rundown of who the hell is Andy and how did you end up in this wonderful world of venture? And, you know, you have this funny story from politics into venture. So help us understand that. Yeah. Hey, David. Hey, Andreas. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It happened a bit by accident. I can give you the, the full story. I was always very interested in history and politics and actually got engaged into politics very early on. And my plan was always first to either become president of the European Commission and then later on the European Central Bank. So I studied <laughs> economics. I always wanted to work in politics. And I also did that for roughly two years as an economic policy advisor. I was also a district council in Vienna, and there are a few things where I was engaged in, in politics. I always liked it, and I still very much uh, love politics, and, and I follow it closely. But then I realized when working in that ecosystem that it's probably not the right fit for me. It was very slow-moving. It was very hierarchical. It was very bureaucratic. I mean, nothing that I think very surprising for everyone out there <laughs> and, and, and the listeners. And then I saw all my friends who actually did, did different things, right? It was the first big wave of also startups in Berlin, 2011, 2012. And I heard so many stories about people having funny office parties. It was uh, <laughs> a very young crowd and it, it, they were move fast and break things, all those things that did not exist in my world. So politics yeah. and especially what I did was very different. And if you're an advisor like I was, you're never calling the shots like 
you're never making decisions. In the end, it's always elected officials who are taking decisions, even if they have no clue about a topic, right? I mean, you have to be, that's the reality. And that was also a bit frustrating because you, in the end of the day, you were sitting there and you realize that what are you actually doing here? What are you really driving forward? And then I saw this other world, this, this tech world, which was so different. And then it was a friend of mine who made me aware of Speed Invest. And he's actually now at Speed Invest, which is really funny. So he, he later on joined Speed Invest. And he made me aware of Speed Invest. We had a lunch. I can really remember it. He told me about Speed Invest. He said, there's this small Austrian fund. And they want to start a second fund. They want to increase the team. So Speed Invest back then was a 10 million, like more or less pre-seed super angel fund. You all know the story probably. And he made me aware of it. And then I applied. And they hired me as the first analyst. <laughs> so I was the first <laughs> analyst at Speed Invest. I also had no competition, to be honest. So my background was a very different one. So it was as politics, right? I was very lucky because nobody back then knew Speed Invest. So nobody really applied. <laughs> People weren't queuing up to join a 10 million euro fund with four partners at the time, <laughs> I believe it was. Uh... Yeah, it was, was already more than that. So we already more <laughs> partners, basically only partners. And also... Most people back then were also not 100% aware of what venture is, right? So VC was not as cool as it is now and as as it is now. So I applied, I got the job. I had a very funny interview with Oliver. And he always later on said that the main reason he hired me was because he just had a lot of fun in the interview. And then I joined as the, as the first analyst, really not really having a lot of idea about venture. And I had to Google due diligence in my first week at Spin West. But then you realized that, that that's what you did before you could even make a coffee in, uh, <laughs> in politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it was a very interesting journey. So I was uh, doing a lot of fintech in the beginning. Then SaaS Enterprise Software helped to build our industrial team. I was leading our climate investments, which I mostly do now. I was helping to build up our different offices back then we only had Vienna, now we have Vienna, Munich, Berlin, London, Paris. I was in San Francisco for a while. I worked for a portfolio company in London for a while. I did all different kinds of things. And I would say I did my whole startup journey um, and also within Speed Invest. And uh, I really loved the, the, the ecosystem. Maybe it's just worth saying to our listeners, if you haven't listened to our episode with all over Hollywood, we talk about the story of Speed Invest. I think it's a great story. It connects to many things that Andy just said. We're not going to repeat it, right? We don't want to bore anyone, but just an invitation to any listener out there interested. Super cool episode. I really recommend it. We've got one which is, I guess, about eight months old or so. And then we've got one that's only three months or so that we did together with the announcement of your 500 million euro fund, which I think, you know, if you put those two together, then you've definitely got a good understanding of what Speed Invest is and what Speed Invest is going to be as well. So definitely go in and listen to that. Andy, I would love to ask you the question. You're coming from politics. Now we got the journey. But what did you bring with you that you think has allowed you to be a different VC than your peers? The politics part comes in quite handy in a lot of different sectors. If you look at fintech, if you look at health, um, if you look at climate tech, um, I think people underestimate how much of those industries are driven by regulation and are driven by government intervention in the form of subsidies or whatever kind of form. I think we've all seen it during COVID. We have seen it with the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, right? So there are a lot of things in a lot of sectors that are driven by policies and politics. And this is, I think, one perspective that I can bring to the table. That's also why I love to work with a lot of climate tech companies because there this perspective is, I think, very valuable. I think that's one difference. I don't see government and politics per se as the evil as a lot of my peers in VC do. 
that's a different perspective. And the second is, I think, due to the fact that I had no background in, let's say, startup or tech, always had to be, so to say, and, and tried to be humble in learning that, learning from founders, learning about technology, uh, learning about different business models and, and try to be as curious as possible because I, I really had to dig my way into that ecosystem and that still sticks with me today. So I know that I have no clue about a lot of things and I also know that I don't know how to code and a lot of things about technology that I don't understand. And I think it can also be a positive aspect because it gives you, let's say, the, the humbleness to say that you have not figured it out all and explain founders how hard it should work. And I think those are two aspects that are a bit different. Now you being part of a bigger firm like Speedinvest, I'd also assume that that you guys have deliberately also built a partnership with more what you might call investors with different backgrounds uh, and different perspectives because it's okay that you are blindsided on some points because you've then got the strength in the policy side. Am I right in saying that you're very much leveraged as the regulators guy inside Speedinvest or not as much? Probably yes. There's still a lot of people within the firm who talk about politics with me. So whenever something happens in politics, they feel the urge to talk with me about it. And probably I am, yes, still the politics. <laughs> I was just about to say, Andy, that I think it makes a lot of sense because that is kind of, you know, the expertise that you want around your table and your cap table. If if you're asking, as you said, an impact startup, you got to have a lot driven by regulation. So from a speed invest ticket, know that you also get the regulatory side at the same time as you get the industry 4.0 team. When speed invest comes in as an investor, I think it's just incredibly valuable, right? Yeah, and uh, we had one colleague, actually, he used to work in politics as well, and he was also working in the government, and we always had heated debates, but he left, he founded his own startup. So there were usually two politics guys, but now I'm the, I'm the only one left. And obviously, you were the one who won the uh, discussion in the end. <laughs> He's very sharp. <laughs> can I ask an extremely off script question, and Andy, feel free to ignore it, and we can move on. But we saw in the last couple of weeks, you know, really interesting, let's call it phenomenon in our industry, right? And we actually did see an interesting development from this regulatory or policy standpoint where we saw the venture industry coming together and kind of really playing a role. Whether we agree or disagree is not the point. The point is that we saw it playing a role with the regulator, right? And I wonder, you know, any reflections from our side? I'm not referring specifically to the SVB UK story. That's not the point. The point is it as an example of what the industry can and should be doing or should not be doing on the regulatory side. Any reflections from your side? I think it shows that there are a lot of options that we have as an industry if we work together towards the same goals. The thing in Europe is that makes it very difficult, I would say, is you have a very fragmented market, plus you have different stakeholders involved. So you have, on the one hand, local governments. On the other hand, you also have European-wide legislation. But I think we do too little in that sense. And I think there are a few people in the ecosystem. I don't know, Klaus Hommels from Lake Styles, I think one example is like his main task is now to being a lobbyist for venture capital, right? But I think what we have to do as an ecosystem is very well known. There are a lot of things that work in other countries. There are a lot of things that work in the US or they work in other Asian economies. There's a really a full list of policy recommendations that we could do in Europe. But we're not really strong enough as an ecosystem to basically lobby for that. Also because in the public sentiment in most European economies, startup and tech is still perceived as something irrelevant. It's a small ecosystem. They have a, a few 
dudes who are rich? Why should we do politics for them? Right. So there is not really nobody really understands the the, the macroeconomic implications of driving innovation and driving technology. I think well enough. I mean, there are a few people who try to do this for the ecosystem. As I said, Klaus Hommes is one, but there's also Christian Miele in, in Germany, for example. He now took over um, in the board of the German Startup uh, Association, and he's trying to push a lot of things. But I think one thing is that we are not aligned as an industry, and I think in a lot of cases. And the second is that most politicians and local governments do not see the real value of, of VC and tech. And I think the third aspect is a tiny one. It's also a bit our own fault because it doesn't really help as an ecosystem if a lot of VCs always say that politicians suck and government and regulation is stupid, right? It's not a good way to make friends, that's for sure. <laughs> it's not a good way to push your own agenda. Yeah, yeah, we could talk for hours on that, but we've got so many initiatives from every single government set up to you know, improve innovation and improve deep tech research and commercialization of these technologies. And in the end, it's not going to fly unless we've got VC funding. And also maybe one last thing on that. In Europe, we are really, really good at making big promises. We are usually very bad at execution. And I think what we're also very good at is to try to do a lot of things at the same time. But I think what we should do is do a few measures, but execute them very well and, and, and really double down on those things that work in Europe. It depends on specific sectors or specific regions or specific policy measures that really work and double down on those and not try to do everything at once with a little bit of money. Because that is, I think, in my perspective, doomed to fail. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. All right. Sorry, as you know, this is why you're the uh, center of attention inside Speed Invest for everyone to come and talk about politics, because no one, <laughs> you know, once you get into those discussions, it's very hard to get out of it. But let us see if we can nonetheless. Andy, you're about or at the time of publishing of this episode, you have just published your great new study, the largest that's ever been made in, in Europe on the state of VC and what VC really looks like and, and how we make decisions. So Andy, I'd love to just ask you to give us the overall take on that report. Why did you set up to do the research? How many did you interview slash, you know, survey? Then afterwards, we'll dive into the uh, the core findings from it. I think it goes very much hand in hand with what we just discussed. I think we should bring more visibility to the European ecosystem, to the European VC ecosystem, but also to the European tech ecosystem. And I think that there are a few initiatives in the past few years, like the report by Atomico and others, that already helped a lot to actually shine a bit light on the ecosystem in Europe. But I think it's still too little. And especially if you look in uh, academic research, then most of the research about venture capital is focused on the U.S., the data is U.S.-based, the research is U.S.-based, the, the professors are U.S.-based. So it's very much still a U.S. business. And I think everyone who is in venture knows that, I mean, our industry is driven by the U.S., right? And, and I wanted to change that and collect more data about how European VC investors decide, operate, and tick in general, and also about their firm structures, about their focus areas, and how they see the European ecosystem and its strengths and weaknesses. And my role model was a US paper that was done in 2015 and 2016 and got published in 2020. It was a combined uh, research paper by Stanford, Harvard, and a few other professors that were basically doing the largest VC survey with a strong focus again on US investors. 
and I, I looked at that paper and I really liked it. I found it super interesting because it gave really good insights on how investors decide on investments and how they take and what is important for them and they negotiate a term sheet. So it was very comprehensive. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we have the same data for Europe? So I tried to use the same questionnaire, the same survey for uh, so the majority of their survey, plus adapted it a bit to Europe and added a few questions also in Europe. So this was the, basically the foundation for the research. I'm curious to hear your reflections. You know, it's a bit of a, a stupid question. Well, it's also an interesting question because now you've you've done the study, right? So you see the results. But on the onset of this project, what were you thinking would be the usefulness of the output, right? Is it more of an intellectual curiosity for any VC out there? Is it more of a comparison? Is Are there policy outputs that can be taken out of this? I don't know, right? I'd love to hear your thoughts. So my original thought was actually nothing will come out of that. <laughs> Waste of time. <laughs> I originally thought that probably that won't be super interesting, but my intellectual curiosity to drive this. And then I thought maybe it's already interesting if we have data for all the things that people always talk about, because there's a lot of, you know, VC is really good at anecdotal evidence and like pseudo academic blog posts. <laughs> and I, I, I thought it would also maybe be super interesting to have the data to also can say, maybe we just operate the same as U.S. investors. Or maybe this is how European investors decide. Maybe the outcome is not something that people are like eye-opening and people are like, wow, I've never expected that. But at least we have the data to back that. And there are a few things in the research actually that were quite interesting and that came out afterwards that maybe I did not expect. I mean, so we, we identified around 780 firms in Europe, uh, VC firms that are operated in the headquartered in Europe and around uh, 6,500 individual VC investors that we surveyed. And this database alone, I think, is the most comprehensive database of European investors. Um, I also want to say in this podcast, sorry for everyone that I bothered with my emails. <laughs> um, but only a few complained, actually, so not, not many complained. And around 500 uh, answered, which is actually quite a lot. It's a bit less, but, but around 500. Just because we came off of the uh, policy <laughs> note before, I want to ask you a question, which is one of the questions in the questionnaire was, does your operational headquarter differ from the fund domicile? Which is such a uh, uh, innocent little question, but from a VC policy side, that is probably one of the questions that our regulators should care a little more about. Yeah, the, the reason why I asked it, because I already had in mind that a lot of funds are not headquartered where they're really operationally headquartered, right? I mean, maybe they run with a, with a third-party license or maybe they are licensed somewhere else. And I think also the, the result shows that there are a lot of funds who are headquartered in Luxembourg but are not really headquartered in Luxembourg. I think this is the most interesting result. We know this quite well because you're also going through the licensing process and so on. And we looked at a lot of different setups across Europe and everyone who ever set up a fund knows that there are big differences between Germany, France, UK, Luxembourg, right? There, there are big differences. And if you look at the details, there's still a clear tendency that Luxembourg and Switzerland are just way favorable. Also, the UK um, are way favorable to set up a fund. Could you share the number? Do you have the number with you? Almost 20% of the people that answered said that they are domiciled in Luxembourg, but only 2% of all the answers said they're really headquartered 
in Luxembourg, just to give you in perspective. And there are also a lot of funds who are legally headquartered in Switzerland from the people that answered over 20% as well, but way less are actually operationally headquartered in Switzerland. So it's either Switzerland and Luxembourg, I would say the clear regulatory winners, if you want to call it that way. I think it has a lot to do also with tax and, and local know-how, right? So, I mean, if you've gone deeper on that, it has a, there are a few things why this is the case. And I think the number one reason is for sure that there's an ecosystem that knows how to deal with funds and VC, that the regulators know about it, the whole ecosystem of service industry around funds, the tax ecosystem is beneficial. So I think there are a few reasons. A week or so ago, I was in a bar with a Danish member of parliament that when I told her what we did, she said, well, why don't you do it in Denmark? And she was super, uh, you know, acquisitive uh, with, with that question. I was like, well, it's not for tax reasons. It's just because there's no ecosystem here. If I were to reach out to a Danish lawyer, can we do it like this? He'd say, fuck, no, you can't. And I'd say, well, I know that you can. Uh, he just doesn't know, right? It's the, the Danish ecosystem isn't up to the level that it needs to be for us to be able to, to do what we're doing here. And even if it was, then we wouldn't have the infrastructure, as you just said. Where's the startups domicile? They do this all the time. Well, their headquarters and act working out of, out of the UK. So I think that's the big difference, right? In markets where you have a strong financial service industry, London, Luxembourg, or maybe Zurich, if you, if, if you stick to those three examples, and you ask people, can we do it that way? They would look at you and say, depends how much you pay, right? So we, we can find a way to make it happen. But if you do this in France or Germany, the answer is probably no, you can't. So to everyone who's listening in, it's not because David and Andreas are paying a lot that we managed to make what we're doing work. Because <laughs> everyone would know that we are hustlers. <laughs> <laughs> also, a disclaimer here in the podcast, um, it's, I'm not talking about uh, bribery. <laughs> no, and neither neither is it evasion or anything. It's just about knowing what how to do things. <laughs> Let's just make everything. Yes, you have you have lawyers, you have tax accountants, you have a whole service industry that just knows how to work with uh, funds and financial services. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It, it. It's complex, right? At the end of the day, it is complex. We oversimplify it. It is complex, and it takes specialized service providers. That's that's the message, right? And less developed ecosystems just unfortunately don't have it yet, right? My, I come from Portugal, right? Really up and coming ecosystem, Lisbon, super exciting. I don't know if there's any kind of player that has really seen distributions being done yet to be able to advise a fund on how to set that up, right? That's just, it's a shame, but it is what it is, right? It's not evasion. It's not nothing illegal, right? It's just experience. That's all. I have so many stories about that, but we probably stop here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we better do those when we uh, are uh, together for a beer in the Bahamas or wherever we'll meet. So, Andy, I'll ask you now because it's incredibly interesting that you had the um, intellectual rigor and scientific record to almost copy the U.S. survey because that allows us, of course, to have a comparison between what the U.S. survey showed and what your survey results show. So I'd maybe ask you if you should draw out the first point for us a market difference between Europe and the US, what should we be talking about? I think the biggest difference, what we see in the firm categorization is definitely that the US market is just way ahead. Right? If you look at, at, at the age of the funds, I think this already shows that they are 20 years ahead and the ecosystem is just way more mature. I think this is, this is one of the biggest highlights in terms of firm categorization. In terms of decision-making, 
and, and what they look at and how they operate. There are also a few differences. U.S. investors, for example, are way picky on ownership. U.S. investors are interestingly, apparently way picky on valuation, which every European investor would say probably is not true. So this is an interesting result. And there are a few things also when they negotiate term sheets or when they look at investments where U.S. investors are different. I think one big highlight definitely is they pay way more attention to exit markets and capital markets when they evaluate an investment, way more than European counterparts. Could also be because there is a, just a lack of exit and capital markets expertise also in Europe. But besides that, I think what we also see in the data is that the overall results are very similar. So what is important when you do an investment decision, how they come up with investment decisions in the partner group, what are the things they are flexible at or not flexible at when they look at term sheets. Those things are very, very similar in, in Europe um, and in the US. And I also think that this is true to the fact that, I mean, European VC is very much influenced also by, by US VC and, and learned, I think, a lot from US VC though. So it's not not surprising that there are a lot of similarities. Just a clarifying question there, Andy, when you talk about, so the first topic you raised before going into decision-making, you talked about the maturity level, so to speak, of the firms. And by that, I'm assuming you're talking about vintages or fund number. Just unpack that. What do you mean? How did you come to that conclusion? So, for example, in the data set, on average, the first fund was raised in 2012 of a European firm, and the median was 2015. So basically, you see that most investors in Europe or most firms started during this cycle, so to say, and this upmarket. Versus if you look at the US data, the average founding year was 1998 and the median was 2000. So a lot of it were also started during the cycle in the US back then, right? Because 1998, 2000 was the hype in the US, but this is where most of them started. So that also shows that they're almost 20 years ahead. Do you have any, uh, I, I guess, know what I have to ask, any data insights or, or thoughts around DPIs as well? Because, you know, it's another conclusion from what you're saying is it's very early days in Europe, right? For us to actually see, see proper DPI. Very different conversation for the US though. That's true. And also very much to, uh, tied to the capital market and exit situation. US investors have a very different view on exit markets, capital markets. Usually it's DPI in, is, is sort of proven versus Europe, very rare big exits and RPOs. And a lot of, let's say, the, the value creation in European tech in the la of the last years is paper value. So it, it still needs to be proven how this is going to turn out, right? I have a, a follow-up question to that. I, I've had this reflection many times, right? The job of VC is to buy and sell equity, right? How we make money by selling that, right? So the exit moment is, is extremely interesting. Is that, and I'm asking for a personal opinion here, there's no data to, to back this, obviously, but would you agree that the fact that we have less expertise in the VC industry in Europe on exit markets per se is kind of a symptom that, our industry kind of came to be or was born in a moment of, of an up cycle so that the focus is on the next round and not necessarily on the exit. And do you see it as a systemic risk to European venture or is it just a matter of, of development? would love to hear your thoughts there. I think that is a an, an, an very important point of the European ecosystem because if you look at past research and we're talking about research about the European DC ecosystem of the 90s or early 2000s. There, most people already said that the biggest barrier for the European ecosystem is the exit market and capital market, because there's still no clear joint European capital markets. 
with the UK leaving the European Union, this even got worse, right? So it's a, it's it's for a lot of European stock exchanges, it's, it's almost impossible to list a company that is not profitable. So there are a few barriers that makes it really hard to exit or IPO in company. Multiples are lower also in Europe um, and strategic exits are not paying also the same multiples. Plus there's not such a strong private equity ecosystem as well as there is in the US. So I think there are a few things that play into that. I think on the last few years, a lot of funds, I think, will realize that it would have been a good idea to exit or to do a secondary or to take some money off the table or to to not optimize only for the next round because you still think this can be a $10 billion company, but you maybe exit earlier. And it was a $4 billion company. Maybe those four was already overvalued, right? So I think that is a big learning curve for the European ecosystem, including us, including everyone. I think that the last few years, it probably would have, would have been good to, to, to exit some companies. One US investor said to me, everyone who didn't IPO the last two years will never IPO. Um, and that's what they said last year. And I think it shows a lot that how US investors think in that sense. They knew that this is a window of opportunity that is probably really perfect versus European investors where I had the impression most of them still thought this goes on forever. Yeah, it's the name of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious because I have a thesis around European VC that is that I've got quite a few more players that, you know, minimize downside more than they uh, focus on, on upside maximization, even to the level where I'd say I, I'm not even sure I'd call them VCs. And and as such, you know, you might also have skewed data here because it's it's speed invest and equation and, and so on that have made the survey. And as such, it might be a bit inside the LinkedIn bubble, the, the survey respondents, and feel free to, to reply to that as well. Um, no, no LinkedIn but, bubble, no LinkedIn bubble. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no LinkedIn bubble, never. Only, only verified investors via email. Otherwise, you would have a really skewed data set. I still think that there's definitely a lot of people that are out there raising VC funds or styling themselves as VCs, but don't know what what super venture is, <laughs> or or have never never even considered going to, uh, <laughs> to 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 some of the more in VC insider uh, conferences, and as such, you know, are in many ways peripheral to the industry. Where I mean that the way you distribute a, a survey always you know, has impacts uh, as to who ends up uh, replying, right? But I'd love to ask you the question because this I saw two questions in the survey that, that really sparked my interest there is comparing that to the U.S., which is what is your required IRR for an investment? And also the same question, but just on the, the, the cash on cash multiple. What I imagine is that, you know, for my thesis to be true, we should definitely have lower return on investment goals in Europe than what they usually have in the U.S. So I'd love to ask you the comparison there. The moment of truth here. Are you right or wrong, Andreas? <laughs> what you're saying is that we have lower IR expectations than the US? Yes. It's yeah. not really true. So the, the, the median um, IR for European investors was 30%, average being 34%. And the top quartile, where you would say those are probably the most, let's say, aggressive or funds, or I would say the most, your definition, the most venture-like funds is 40% plus. So the upper quartile starts at 40% plus and the multiple there starts at, at 10 and the median is 5x, but the upper quartile starts at 10x, which is, is very similar to the US. Although you have in the US data set also sometimes higher IRR expectations 
for the late stage set of investors, but this is also due to lower holding periods. Just to make sure I understand there, Andy, did you look at that data per stage or is that just a side comment you're doing? Just to be sure we understand. That's a side comment. So in the US, they split it in early and late stage and the combined results are very similar to the European data. We didn't split it into early and late stage because there was a very strong bias towards early stage and the, the, the numbers are very similar. Just, I have to push for my co-founder's perspective, right? Would it be fair, would it be fair to say, and it's, it's an honest question, would it be fair to say that there might be a slight difference though, because as you said, right, the European data is mostly early stage. And then in the US, you have it a bit less biased towards early stage, I, I would guess. Uh, but then the aggregate numbers are somewhat similar. And as you said, later stage the expectations are lower given the lower holding periods. W would that be kind of a fair deduction to make? Yeah, if we basically condense the question and say the average for early stage investors in Europe was 34% and the average IRR for early stage investors in the US was 33%. So this is very, very similar. It's, it's the same. And if you split it down into early and late stage, then there are differences. Uh, that is... I, I, we didn't ask the question, but looking at the math, that is pretty much driven by holding periods because if, if you have a, an early stage deal for 10 years and, and your goal is, I don't know, 20, 25%, versus you are pre-IPO and you want to do pre x in like four years, it's a, it's, a very different, it's a very different game. But if you look at the early stage samples, the data is very similar. But then I have to ask you guys a question and, and indulge me in this discussion, right? Because I have always heavily assumed that we had more investors in Europe that were playing a downside minimization game and going with for fewer moon shots. And as such, you know, I am surprised at this number because I, I get it if they're targeted the same somewhat IR for the whole fund, but that's different, right? But if you say that I don't want my companies to die, which is there's many, at least I'm seeing many decks from, <laughs> from people that, that have a portfolio model that, that, kind of is less aggressive than I would say is, is, is typical venture. So for that reason, I, I am quite baffled by the that. I would think that this too, Andreas, you see, there's also a point here on the, the feedback loops, right? They're so long. And I think anyone operating in venture without learning and into iterating and integrating that into their thought process isn't really doing a good job, right? And I think there's something to be said where, what is your expectation after delivering DPI a couple of times? What is your expectation prior to ever delivering DPI? And I think the data sets are not comparable 100% also for that reason, right? We, we see that as well ourselves in our day-to-day in our -day business where we have aspiring VCs that think they will deliver 10x and well, good luck, but it doesn't mean you will. If you have delivered 7x, 8x, maybe now you have a different mind state, right? Coming to it. On the company level though, that's, where, that's why I'm, I'm baffled at the results, right? Because on the company level, you always know that even when you go in with the moonshot view, you'll say, I know that 80% are going to be not much worth, but then I wouldn't aim for 33% on just the two companies that succeed, right? Uh, a few aspects to that. I think the first is maybe they just answer their wishful thinking, right? So, But in general, I'm not agreeing. I think that the mindset in Europe has shifted a lot. And we also got responses from, I would say all the tier one investors are in Europe. So it could be the case that this set of investors already very much thinks and acts like the US, so to say. And also what we see in our daily life, I think, is that the mindset in Europe over the last years has changed quite a lot. 
focusing more on upside rather than minimizing downside. I think it has changed a lot. But I'm with you. When I started in venture, let's say 2015, for example, it was still very different because there was things like milestone-based investing work was normal, right? And there were a lot of things that you don't see anymore. And the mindset has shifted way more. And as David said, it also comes very much down to experience because people, I think, realized over the last years, VC is so much driven by power law. It doesn't make sense to get your money back on that deal. If you look at it from a fund economics perspective, people realized the only thing that matters is really to optimize for the upside because everything else will never drive return. It might be a good story, but it does not really try to return. And I think that's that, that what people had to learn and also have to learn still, I think. I have one question, which is, and that's another difference that I have always also assumed between uh, Europe and U.S. being different, which is the, the, not the and here you asked the question, um, what percentage of your investments are syndicated? So that means uh-huh. you're not asking the question, how many are in that syndicate? And I actually kind of think that that's where I think that we'll, we would see the biggest difference, meaning I think most rounds are put together between, you know, <laughs> multiple VCs. Um, but typically the number of investors is, is larger in the U.S. than here. I'd love to ask if you have any views on that, Andy. So what we see in the data is that median being 80%, so 80% of all rounds are syndicated doesn't really break down in how that syndication looks like, right? I'm not saying this is like a 50-50 co-investment, but 80% of the rounds are syndicated, which is very much in line of, let's say, our experience in the day-to-day practice that most rounds are syndicated, one form of, uh, or the other. 50% roughly of the fund said that complementary expertise is the most important factor. 25 roughly said that risk-sharing is the most important reason and only 21% said it's about capital constraints. So when people form a syndicate, it comes way more about complementary expertise, risk sharing, different perspective, rather than we just need the money. And also when they choose a syndication partner, so when European funds choose a syndication partner, it's a lot about sector expertise, track record. So this shows that people, A, love to syndicate rounds and B, choosing a syndication partner is driven by a lot of soft factors and not really about hard factors, meaning they need more money. And the difference to the US is a bit US rounds less syndicated because US investors strive for more ownership. So that was one of the results where European and US investors differ a lot. US investors strive for 20% plus ownership, which probably comes also down a bit to more experience. They realize that if you want to make fund economics work, you need better ownership. And European investors strive for less ownership. But I expect that European investors will move up over the next years because they will realize the same and they will go for the same learning curve. But that's why a lot of rounds are not syndicated because they usually, as we call it in VC, right, they take the whole round. And everyone who ever worked with US investors knows that this happens in a lot of cases. They say, no, there's no space. Whereas European investors who are more like, yeah, let's, 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 let's find that work because a uh, uh, syndicated works very well. That's super interesting. <laughs> Andreas from UVC, is it, is it right to say that it might also be your, your perspective might also be that you have, you know, on the early stages of venture, right? In the US, you have a lot of more self-governed syndicates happening rather than institutional rounds happening. Whilst in Europe, you have mostly, all players are pre seed focused, right? So there's, it's a very different market dynamics. Am I, would that be the case, maybe? It's also when you look at the question, right? You say it's, 
and I didn't pick that up, but it, it, it does specify that this is between VCs, not other angels. Basically, just syndicate rounds. It doesn't specify that's true. Um, I think uh, what, what is unique, I think, in Europe, um, but that is just my add-on, is a lot of investors want to build up track record. So this thing of a logo ticket or a logo deal, which if you really do the math, doesn't really make sense. But a lot of investors, as we have seen in the data, are super young. A lot of them want to build up track record. And that's why I think a lot of people syndicate rounds or do smaller tickets in rounds uh, just to be in there. And this is definitely something that comes down a bit to the young ecosystem in Europe. Andy, we uh, got excited with the discussion, got sidetracked uh, three or four times, I think. Uh, and so instead of ending with the quick fire round, I'm going to end with uh, a little teaser of more of what anyone can read in said report or results of the survey. So could you give us a quick rundown, Andy, of, you know, the fragmentation of Europe? Is that is that an issue? Is it not? Is Europe fragmented as a market in venture? Yes, the European ecosystem is fragmented. Uh, I think what we see is strong hubs in the core economies being France, Germany, UK, uh, almost 50% of all firms, VC firms in Europe are located in those three countries. But there are also a lot of other hubs, Netherlands, Spain, Switzerland, Denmark, Sweden, Luxembourg, that are to highlight it here. So we see that there are above 10 countries in Europe that actually play a role in the European ecosystem which showed that there is no like one single hub or no, let's say, European San Francisco or New York, but there are many hubs, although, of course, the, the, the most important ones are, are the usual suspects like London, Berlin, Paris, uh, Stockholm. But the main reason when we asked investors, why do you think the European market is, uh, is, is fragmented and when there's no single European market, so to say, in the VC ecosystem, 70% said it's about cultural differences. Almost 70% also said, different maturity of the regions and ecosystems. And 65% said the regulatory environments are different. And 55 said uh, a lot of the cultural differences are driven by language barriers. So you see that there, there are many different reasons why investors say that the European market is fragmented. What was also interesting is that investors said the geographical distance does not play a role. So uh, as we all know, you can hop on a plane or on a train and you're pretty much everywhere in Europe. So that doesn't really seem to be, be a hurdle. It's really more about the regulatory environment, the different maturity, the cultural and language uh, differences that still make it, let's just say, different ecosystems. And that can also be seen in the focus areas of the, of the firms. So a lot of VC firms in Europe have a specific geographic focus there are not many investors who really focus on all of Europe, um, but to focus on the Nordics or focus on, on, on UK or focus on Dach. So I think there are, uh, uh, that is also a bit due to, to the fragmentation of the ecosystem. Yeah. And I can go on and go on because there are a lot of other uh, things to say about the European ecosystem. But I think it, it shows that there's still a long way to go, uh, which also maybe comes down to close the loop to the policy discussion we had. There are probably a few things you can drive on the regulatory side and policy side to make the European ecosystem more like uh, one common ecosystem. 
Andy, thank you for uh, your time with us on the European VC podcast. It was super cool. I think it was really insightful, uh, really cool discussion. One of the one of the few episodes where we had the opportunity to uh, share different views, get debunked, get questioned, question you, and, and and the other way around. It was super super fun. And um, to all our listeners, you know the the, the results are available now so go check them out and uh, shoot us any any comments uh, interact with us on LinkedIn whatever you think is best and thanks a lot for having me of course we enjoyed it and now some words from our beloved sponsors how are you currently reporting to your LPs is fund administration taking hours are you getting lost in spreadsheet version control well flow solves all of these issues and more allowing you to unlock the power of your fund's data by consolidating your work streams onto Flow. Book a demo to learn about Flow's portfolio and fund management features and transaction infrastructure at flow.io forward slash VC. F-L-O-W-W forward slash VC. For investors looking for capital, the UAE has become the hub of choice for VCs to connect with startups, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, and funder funds. This October, join fund managers representing over $500 billion of assets under management from CVC, General Atlantic, Techstars, Sequoia, Speed Invest, MEVP, and more, who join Expand Northstar to connect with hundreds of early-stage to growth startups from all markets for a curated concierge-style meetings program. Previous participating founders hail from Stripe, Binance, GoOne, Byju's, InterSwitch, Caro, and more. Register now at expandnorthstar.com forward slash EUVC. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.